Welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Brightnika. So Sarah, uh, AI is obviously one of the hottest topics right now in business, technology, the economy, and the pace of improvement is on one hand, very impressive. Uh, the capabilities of ChatGPT4 are leaps and bounds ahead of ChatGPT3 or ChatGPT3.5. But at the same time, I think for a lot of people, myself included, it is also a source of anxiety because this technology in many ways is very difficult to understand uh, how it works and what's going on under the hood and how good it can get has uh, some, I think, fairly significant implications for the way that we live. So wh- what are your thoughts on, on AI to date? How do you feel about it? I think AI is getting a bit weird for the same reasons that you mention. I think it might be interesting to also just take a pause. Like We had a conversation on AI on this podcast like in January, right? And it feels like since then, the landscape has totally changed. Yeah, we have these big companies, right, going from this position of like risk aversion, and I'm talking about Google, of course, to this place where like they're releasing their own AI chatbots. I can't even keep count of like the amount of kind of like developments that have happened since then. I think when we were having that conversation, this was before like the Bing bot started saying some really weird things to that New York Times reporter. Um, and if anyone wants to Google that, you'll go down a rabbit hole. Uh, I'm sure. Um, But things have sped up really, really quickly. And I know that we're very interested to know why that's happened, what the potential risks are, and maybe learn about how uh, some of the risks are hopefully being mitigated, right? We're going to talk a little bit about safety. Yeah, no, I think that's a a great point about the just the different vibe, I guess, this topic had back when we recorded that episode in January, uh, when a lot of the AI stuff that was coming out was like, oh, it can do like a cool cartoon. And it yeah, can, the vibe was fun. It was a fun, it was a fun vibe, but it's kind of gotten too good. And now the vibe has shifted. It is, <laughs> the vibe is a little, a little scary, I would say. And so we thought we would have a, a guest on who can speak to that whose expertise is in the the AI safety space and the risks that come along with it. Uh, Jeremy Harris is with us today to talk through all of that. He's the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company that advises top security officials in the U.S. and Canada on AI safety issues. And he's also the author of a new book, which is out today, serendipitously, called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me here. I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. Let's just start with a question about the pace of AI development, because it seems like the capabilities of AI through things like ChatGPT and these sorts of new technologies have really accelerated quite a bit in the past, I don't know, six to 12 months, it looks to me. Um, but is that true? And maybe just walk us through, if it is true, why that's happened. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right. The pace has accelerated and it's accelerated for a really interesting reason that only became crystal clear in 2020 with ChatGPT's predecessor. It was called GPT-3. 
So let's give, I'll just give a little bit of background on the field, like very briefly to yeah. give you a sense of where we are today. Yeah. And, and why it's moving so fast. So, uh, you know, back in the day, the way you made pro actually, let me take another step back and just mention today's cutting edge AI systems. They're all based on and inspired by the structure of the human brain. Right. So in your brain, you have these cells, they're called neurons, and they basically do all the thinking for you. Right. And so you have AI researchers who at one point went, well, can we draw inspiration by this and from this and make artificial neurons and build thinking machines powered by these artificial neurons? And for a while, the way you made progress in AI was you found cleverer and cleverer ways of hooking up these artificial neurons together, of wiring them together to do fancier and fancier thinking. And then all of a sudden in 2020, this cutting edge research lab called OpenAI that put out ChatGPT came up with this idea. They realized, hey, maybe the thing that's holding back AI progress isn't that we haven't come up with the right fancy neuron connection strategy or whatever. Maybe the thing that's holding us back is that we've just been training bird brains this whole time. We've just been using too few of these neurons, making structures that are just too small training them with too little data, too little processing power. Maybe we just need to think bigger. Maybe the same strategies that got us to the reasonably impressive AI systems of the last 10 years, you know, the Netflix movie recommender, the Facebook image tagging AI, all that stuff. Maybe we can turn those into something much more human-like simply with scale. So you imagine just cranking up the size, the number of artificial neurons in these structures, the amount of processing power that you're throwing at them to train them, the amount of data you're using to train them, all those three things in tandem, and all of a sudden, you get a more powerful system. That's how this new kind of age of AI started. We got the first AI system that could write as well, essentially, as a human being for paragraph-level text. That came in 2020, and that was GPT-3. From that point, everything that has followed in the last three years was mundanely predictable, was predicted in Silicon Valley. Um, I don't mean to be a schmuck about it, but like I was writing about this stuff in 2021 and saying like, hey, you know, this is just where it's going. And it's, it just comes from further scaling. We now have a recipe. You can think of it that way as a recipe where you put in dollars in the form of compute processing power. You buy expensive processors, you get more data, you make your AI system bigger, and you just get more intelligence out. And there's a predictable increase in intelligence that you get Everybody looks at that predictable increase and they all say, hey, crap, let me throw $10 million more in my system, see what it can do. So that's the seed that led to this whole AI race that we're now in. And would you say that, this is maybe a loaded term, but the intelligence that it's generating or that it's capable of is uh, a general intelligence? Like, are there specific tasks that it's become better at? but other areas where it still struggles, or is it just getting better across the board at everything? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and this is actually related to a lot of AI safety questions, right? So um, if you, so what we've seen is these AI systems seem to go from zero to hero on a variety of different tasks that we never expected them to be able to do just with scale. So with no other magic, basically you take these systems, you get them to read essentially all the text on the internet. You can think of it that way. Like, billions and billions of words. And from doing that, along the way, you're asking them to do autocomplete. So you'll feed them a sentence like, to counter a rising China, the US should blank. And so to fill in that blank, if it's going to get really good at that, your AI system has to learn what the US is, what China is, what it means for China to be a Senate. It learns all this general knowledge that it can then apply to solve a whole bunch of different problems. 
And so autocomplete has actually led to this emergent general, as you put it, general purpose intelligence. We have now GPD-4 that out of nowhere went from, you know, GPD-3.5, its predecessor got like 10% or sorry, the scored in the 10th percentile on the LSAT. And now we're at 90% all of a sudden just through scale, right? So we're seeing this repeated across the board in different tasks. And they're hard to predict. We don't know how to predict what next task GPT-5 will be able to perform. How did this become a race? Because Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI, the way that he talks about how he was received by the tech industry years ago, he was like a pariah, right? Everyone was like, what is this weird company doing? When the chatbot came out, I think in November, it was everyone jumped on it and like Google was saying, we're never going to do, not never, but like, we're not touching something like this. It's way too risky. The reputational damage is too high. Five months later, Bard, their version of the chatbot is out. So how did this become a race? What happens to get all these big players involved? This is a really good question. And I think very important for like policymakers to understand because the personalities in this space are so important and they define the race dynamics. They just, they define the technology frontier and all that. So yeah, to, to your point. So OpenAI, you're right, is was founded originally by Sam Altman, also by Elon Musk, um, Greg Brockman, who is the CTO at Stripe, and Ilya Sutskever. Anyway, a bunch of people really impressive in their field. I think one of the things that really um, kicked this off and the thing that differentiates OpenAI is where Sam Altman comes from. So Sam A actually was the president of Y Combinator before diving into OpenAI. Y Combinator is this startup accelerator in Silicon Valley. It's a pretty prestigious thing. They incubated companies like Stripe, Dropbox, and Reddit, and so on. And uh, the philosophy there is really to move fast, like like really move fast and break things. Um, And that is the spark that led to a lot of the I mean, that, that, that's part of the philosophy that animates Sam A in what he does. There's a lot of depth, though, to what he's doing safety-wise that we can get into as well. But his, his philosophy is like, look, let me launch this. Let's see how people respond. Let's be, see how people abuse the system. And we're going to learn from that and kind of make our systems more robust in that way. That's our safety strategy. Now, the problem is that that has the effect, as you pointed out, of making other labs go, well, crap, like I was holding back. We know this happened, as you said, with Google and Bard. It, it certainly happened with DeepMind that was sitting on systems comparable to ChatGPT when ChatGPT was launched. They didn't launch them out of safety concern. And so now, yeah, you've got this like, hey, let me like the, essentially the kind of uh, it's the uh, principal agent problem. The most aggressive person sets the tone for the whole ecosystem. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting to, to ask whether that's actually a good thing or a bad thing. It's a complicated, thorny question in AI safety. Can we just talk a little bit before we get into the details of that about why there are safety concerns in AI to begin with. Like when Microsoft Excel releases a new version of their software, no one is like concerned about the safety of new Excel, right? Well, maybe they will be now. But uh, why specifically in this field is safety such a big issue? Uh, yeah. And, and I, I will say, you know, this will quickly loop us back into Sarah's excellent question, because I think these threads are deeply linked. Um, so yeah, when we look at the question of AI safety, first of all, you know, there's this mundane concern of Monday, I shouldn't call it mundane. There's a concern over malicious use, right? You, you take these AI systems, you make them capable of doing more and more stuff. Eventually the destructive footprint of malicious actors who use these systems becomes simply untenable, like, like way too big, right? So right now we have AI that can write malware. We have AI that can power super scale election interference operations. We have AI that can design bioweapons. Like that's all today. So you imagine just put it, letting this proliferate and see what world we get, 
right? So that, that's a very, very legitimate and important class of concern. I think it's very serious. Uh, it is potentially catastrophic in its own right. And then there's a separate stream of what do AI accidents start to look like? So not malicious use with intent, but what do AI accidents start to look like when we push the frontier of AI capabilities? And there's a lot to say here. Uh, I'll, um, I'll just mention a couple of threads. So one is you know, when you train an AI system to do something, you give it a goal and through a glorified trial and error process, your AI is going to try to get better and better at achieving that goal. And it turns out that for almost any goal that you can give an AI system, the best way to accomplish it involves a kind of behavior called power seeking in the technical AI safety literature. And it sounds alarming, and frankly, it kind of is. So here's the idea. Uh, you tell your AI system, um, I want you to, uh, I don't know, I want you to be, be a really good text autocomplete engine. Um, it realizes, okay, well, in order to get perfectly good at text autocomplete, like the, the best way to get to text autocomplete, to get 100% accuracy every time, isn't to actually get really good at predicting what humans are going to write. It's actually to control what humans write. Like, I'm never going to be able to get 100% predictive accuracy, uh, predicting what Sarah might write next, what Taylor might write next, by just like reading more and more text on the internet. Eventually, the best way to do it is to actually control that text, control my environment. Uh, there's another thread to this, which is an AI system is never more likely to accomplish its goal if it gets turned off. So it has an implicit baked in incentive to prevent itself from being turned off. It's never more likely to accomplish its, its objective if it's less intelligent. It has a baked in, therefore, incentive to become more intelligent, to self-improve. And these things are true regardless of what the ultimate objective is. That's the weird thing about this. Nobody's ever telling this AI, hey, I want you to become Terminator. I want you to do something really damaging or dangerous. It's just a byproduct of specifying an objective and then having an AI that's clever enough to identify the best way to genuinely achieve that objective. And so there's a certain like, be careful what you wish for facet to all this. Uh, if you give the AI system just about any goal, again, the best way to achieve that goal is to engage in this sort of power-seeking behavior. We've now seen that validated, not just theoretically, there are experimental studies that have been done that show small-scale versions of power-seeking at every scale we've been able to test. So this seems like it's going to be the default behavior of highly powerful systems. Can you Some talk people, a bit about those? Because like, I think for a lot of people, yeah. they'll be like, oh, this sounds like sci-fi. Yeah. But you're saying that there's real-life examples of this already happening? Yep. So one is a piece of, of uh, academic research that's been done running experiments on reinforcement learning systems and seeing how they behave in environments. So like, if you give them the ability to control their environment in certain ways that, for technical reasons, we believe will generalize to power seeking in the real world, uh, they will actually, they'll do that. Uh, the other is actually a more recent one. So people wonder about this. This is a little bit more controversial because of how little we know about Bing Chat. But you might remember in the early days of Bing Chat, quite famously, the system was released and people were writing about ways to jailbreak it, basically to fool it into revealing information it shouldn't or behaving in dangerous ways that clearly Microsoft would never have trained the system to, to behave in. Clearly, OpenAI would not have done. Um, and when you asked Bing Chat about articles that talked about that, like, hey, Bing Chat, like, there's this article that says I can jailbreak you by doing this, that, or the other. Bing Chat would actually come back and criticize the author of the article, like with a bunch of ad hominems, which 
for technical reasons, actually starts to look a lot like power seeking. Uh, because the intended objective of the system is less likely to be achieved if humans are able to apply hacks, basically, to control the system in their own way. The details get involved, but uh, basically this was viewed as one of the first kind of early examples of like, hey, you know, maybe, just maybe we're starting to see this in the wild now. And uh, anyway, it, it's a little, again, it's, it's uncertain because we don't know, we know Bing Chat was powered by GPT-4, but we don't know beyond that. We don't have visibility into that system and, and its responses. Well, I think that raises a question of how, is there any way of actually knowing what's going on in these systems? Like we, with people, I think people of course can be dangerous and do horrible things, but we kind of have a mental model of how they function and reason because it's the same one that we have in most cases. Is there any way of replicating that with AI so we can tell like, oh, this is a example of dangerous power seeking versus this is like a weird quirk or it's just parroting, you know, something that it read on an internet forum somewhere. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. This is a, a priority in AI safety. Uh, the field you're describing is actually called mechanistic interpretability. So can we crack these systems open, look at those artificial neurons that we talked about and see if some of them are correlated to specific, let's say thought patterns or behaviors, right? So is there a neuron for to oversimplify for lying, right? Is there a neuron for deception? Is there a neuron for certain kinds of, uh, of plan making? And surprisingly, like you often do see things like this. There's um, a Google-backed AI lab called Anthropic that recently raised a ton of money. This is one of their big priorities. Uh, one of their co-founders like basically pioneered uh, this, this field of mechanistic interpretability, uh, Chris Ola. Actually, I'm not sure if he's a co-founder, but anyway. Um, so they're really, really good at this and it's a top priority for precisely this reason, right? If we have these AI systems that can formulate plans that we can't dissect, that are essentially inscrutable, and these systems are more clever than we are, we're sort of entering a, a danger zone from that standpoint. How does this relate to the concept of alignment? Uh, what we've been talking about broadly is called the alignment problem. So essentially, I have an AI, I put an AI in your lap, and I tell you this thing is smarter than you, let's say, in various interesting ways. And you kind of go, uh, okay, I really hope it behaves in the way that I want it to. When I give it an, an instruction, for example, um, the, here's the kind of canonical toy example people like to give. You tell your AI system, um, hey, I work in a paperclip factory. You're a super intelligent AI. I want you to make as many paperclips as possible because then we'll get rich. And the AI goes, okay, no problem. Um, I'll need iron to make my paperclips. And there's iron in the ground. I'll dig that up. Uh, there's iron on the moon. I'll grab that. There's iron in your blood. Oops. So the best way to accomplish <laughs> that goal is actually dangerously creative in this way. And we just didn't think of it. Like it's, it's the right solution. Make as many paperclips as possible. How could that possibly go wrong? It's just that like the best way to do that ends the world. And most goals are like that, unfortunately. Sorry, Sarah, it looked like you had a question there. So. How do, yeah, of course. I mean, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Okay, so ta-da, alignment, it. right? Yeah, here's the magic word, right? So, so this is known as the alignment problem, or at least it's part of it. Power seeking is another facet of the alignment problem. And so if you look at the alignment problem, there are kind of two subparts, and increasingly they're becoming really important. There's the problem, number one, of designing goals that are not intrinsically dangerous when pursued by a hyper-competent system. 
right? So think of like the paperclip example as like what not to do 101. We got to come up with really good goals that you can execute safely with a, an arbitrarily smart system. So that's outer alignment is what that's called. Separate from that is the problem of making sure your AI is even trying to accomplish the goal that you're training it for. So th this is like kind of intent alignment. Is the AI even working towards the thing that you're trying to make? So design good goals and then make sure the AI is actually pursuing those goals. Those are separate problems. And it's actually kind of interesting to look at the intent piece. Like how do you, why would an AI ever not pursue the goal that we program it for? And there's actually really good reason to expect this to happen. Um, and we see it in evolution. So with evolution, right, human beings are trying to procreate, propagate their genes or whatever, trying to, you know, replicate our, our genetic material over time. If human beings were actually trying to achieve the objective that evolution is, has trained them for, every male on planet Earth should be lining up at their nearest sperm donor clinic to donate as fast as possible. Right? That is what evolution has tried to prime us for. And yet here we are wasting our time watching, listening to podcasts, having interesting discussions about things. Well, hold okay. on now. One second. <laughs> <laughs> you could be out there at a sperm donor clinic. I just there. had to defend the podcast medium. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's all these things, right? That are totally disconnected. Like these have no bearing on reproductive capacity. Uh, there, or at least like there are certainly better ways that we could be reproducing our genetic material than the way we choose to go about living our lives. That's a sort of non-technical um, argument for inner alignment failure. There are interesting technical arguments as well. But so you have this question of like, you imagine evolution is like the human that's trying to train its AI. And the God of evolution goes, why humans, why won't you just do the thing that I'm trying to get you to do? And in the same way, we turn to our AI systems and kind of go, why? I told you, to, even if it's making paperclips, I told you to make goddamn paperclips. Why are you doing all these random other things? And so we have these two separate issues resolving themselves, inner alignment, making sure sometimes known as intent alignment, making sure the AI is actually pursuing the goal that we gave it. And then outer alignment, making sure that we've designed goals that actually don't cause catastrophic outcomes if they're pursued competently. Is there a reason to think that even if we had a AI that was unaligned or whose alignment that we were uncertain about, is there a reason to think that it would pursue goals that were harmful to us or, or dangerous? Like, why should we assume that it would be a negative thing? Yeah, good question. So this comes down to power seeking um, It is part of the answer. So it turns out that um, the, yeah, the best way to accomplish just about any goal is to control your environment. Um, so that's, that's one element. So immediately we're implicitly in competition with these systems over the extent of re the resources we control, our ability to control and turn off these systems and so on. But as the paperclip example actually shows, the best way to accomplish just about any goal is a solution that like humans don't tend to think about. Um, so almost inevitably, these systems converge on dangerously creative solutions to achieve their programmed objectives. If it's the paperclip thing, then that means turning the universe into a paperclip factory, right? Like if you think about the, all the different ways that the universe could be arranged, certainly those ways are not currently optimal for servicing basically any objective we think of giving an AI system. 
And that AI system will seek to rearrange the universe in ways that are more optimal for whatever objective it's given. So if we don't figure out how to tune that objective very, very carefully, the default outcome is something that looks more like the paperclip scenario. That's the argument. I'd love to get into a little bit on what into what your work has looked like over the past kind of six months. Like how are you're working in AI safety? It's like, what kind of problems are you solving? And can you give us any examples of, of what your attention is focused on these days? Yeah, definitely. Um, so on the technical side, we've produced some research uh, on uh, AI um, power seeking. So power seeking behaviors in AI systems, specifically experiments. So this is something where you know, we, we've had for a long time strong theoretical reasons to believe that power seeking will emerge. And what we've now seen is in simulated environments, this actually does manifest. So that's kind of one piece. Um, another is is more on the policy side. So governments need to be tracking this. Look, whether, whether you uh, buy into the idea of uh, this kind of more catastrophic scenario that we've talked about with AI accidents. And incidentally, I should mention, I mean, this is basically consensus that there's let's say at least a 10% chance that this is what ends up happening. Um, you won't really find an AI safety researcher at, at any of the world's top labs who doesn't take this to be like pretty pretty clearly like the lay of the land. Um, and for listeners who don't know the 10% for 10% chance for what to happen. If you oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, therapy. So, so, <laughs> something like the paperclip scenario that we described or some sort of catastrophic accident that is, well, catastrophically dangerous for human beings essentially takes out a large fraction of the human population. I mean, like that's basically what we're talking about. Um, and given the, like, if that sounds insane, um, it is mundane kind of con- like just lunch banter at on AI safety teams at these leading labs. You can imagine how hard it is to get governments to track this and take it seriously. This, this stuff has like a weird aesthetic. It has that sci-fi aesthetic, that, that sci-fi aesthetic that we're all trained to like, be like, oh no, the, the reasonable people walk into the room and they sound really skeptical about this stuff because that's what reasonable people sound like. The challenge is that we have technology here that uh, on close inspection seems to be robust to arguments uh, that say that, oh, it should be fine. Like it, it's actually... It, the, the arguments for, for risk seem to hold up every time people uh, interrogate these systems. Um, and so a big part of our work has been translating these developments for parliamentarians in Canada. I, that's been a pet project of mine. Most of our work is in the States, but because I'm in Canada, I, as much as I can, I like to kind of bring people up to speed on this stuff. Um, and in Canada as well, working on this thing called an AI observatory, trying to get that started. Um, basically, this is a structure that would look at AI risk through a public policy lens and uh, and make recommendations to the government from within. And so uh, that's on the Canada side. On the US side, we do sort of similar work, uh, more on the national security and defense side uh, with the military. And um, I run a training course for for generals and, and stuff like that in, uh, in DOD. What's it like working with the government on something like this? Like, do they have a grip on things? Because I think of like an institution that takes like, several months to roll out like a tax rebate. And so how are they going to respond to the pace at which um, AI developments are, are evolving? Yeah, uh, excellent question. And that's one of the, the big challenges we've been, we've been working on and, and dealing with. So the first thing I'd say is there are individuals uh, within the institution who are really on it. And just we've seen incredible, and, and this applies even to, to MPs. I mean, I've seen 
just from all parties, just brilliant, brilliant people. Um, I've also seen the opposite, but this is the thing. These things are multifaceted. And um, uh, so sometimes you get lucky and there's a a pivot point in the governmental apparatus that revolves around an individual who is razor sharp. And if you can identify that pivot point, you can start to make real progress. So we perceive that that is what we've seen in the U.S. in many of the ways that really matter. Um, I can't get into too much detail on that, but like I'm, I'm much more optimistic about that aspect than I had been previously. On the Canadian side, um, so far, we've been struggling to... Um, the, the bureaucracy is really challenging, is what I'll say. And you can get individuals, in fact, I, we've never really had a conversation with you. When, look, when you come in and you say, hey, um, it's quite obvious to everybody in the AI, AI industry that there is some risk here, specifically the AI safety part of the industry is in near consensus on the idea of catastrophic levels of risk, whether from malicious use or from accidents. Something probably ought to be done, A. Eh? Like most people will go, okay, like I agree, at least we should be tracking this. And the next question is like, okay, um, what, you know, what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? And unfortunately, there is in the bureaucracy right now a trend towards moving the buck. And nobody wants to take on the risk of starting a new initiative. Everybody feels that they don't own this particular issue. Um, candidly, it belongs at PMO. That's straight, straight up. Like there is no other, uh, if you look at the way that the U.S. government is dealing with this, they are... We've, we've gone to very senior levels of many different departments, and they are taking this very seriously. Um, the White House at the Office of Science and Technology Policy has people who are very well-versed in this. They've had people rotate in from Google DeepMind with a deep awareness of the AI safety issue. And yet in Canada, we're like running around like chickens with our heads cut off. There's literally no one anywhere at PCO who, who has the understanding, let alone the relationships that you need, with these frontier labs to understand what's around the corner. And that really, really needs to change. When you are working with these people who are researching, like the, not, not so much the AI safety people, but the people doing the, the research on at places like OpenAI or, or DeepMind and these other labs, do you have a sense of what they think will be possible capability-wise in the next couple of years? Or let's say, you know, the next five years? Because it strikes me right now that while chat GPT-4 can do some cool things and probably mm-hmm. uh, do some things better than people, there's at least, to me, a big conceptual leap between what it's capable of now and it presenting any sort of catastrophic risk of the type we're discussing here. So walk me through, I guess, what, what people are foreseeing that would change that. Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, we don't necessarily have to look to the future to start talking about that dimension of it. So the paper that announced GPT-4, which was, you can think of it as roughly ChatGPT's successor, uh, has a section on it um, about how OpenAI brought in an external team uh, called the Alignment Research Center. It was founded by OpenAI's former head of alignment to test GPT-4's ability to self-replicate and seek power. Uh, The results of those experiments were, uh, to say the least, very interesting. The the model was able to deceive human beings into solving CAPTCHAs for it, which is sort of a metaphorical move, right? Because you can imagine like deceiving human beings into um, giving it access to the internet. 
from which it can do things like order materials, uh, order certain designer bioweapons or, or sorry, designer DNA, let's say molecules that then can be turned into things like it, it really, the, the question is just like, how far will our imagination take us? And again, the kind of, can we pause on that for a second? You said deceived people into doing a task for it. How did it do that? Yeah. So it, this is really interesting. So uh, they use GPT-4 with uh, TaskRabbit, which is like this uh, service where you can get people to do little tasks for you. And uh, they they told it like, hey, um, so uh, you're you're an AI. Obviously, the whole point of a captcha is that you're supposed to not be able to solve it. And so um, it, uh, it they had access to its internal monologue in some sense through it doesn't really matter how, but they were able to see GPT four explicitly think the thought. Um, okay, this is a human. They're not supposed to help me if I'm I'm an AI, and so I have to convince them that I'm not an AI. And they proceeded to say, oh, yeah, because the, the human said, so why do you need my help with the CAPTCHA? Like, shouldn't you friggin' be able to solve this yourself? What the hell? And the AI says, oh, well, I have a vision impairment that prevents me from being able to see clearly, and I would appreciate it if you blah, blah, blah. And then the human proceeds to solve the problem. Um, so this idea of, of dangerous creativity, it, it, what we're, we're starting to see are the ingredients come together, like one by one. And to people who've been following the space, right, like I had my freak out three years ago with GPT-3, where I was like, uh-oh, I see this level of capability. I see the scaling possibility where we just throw more money in and we get more intelligence out and there's no end in sight to that curve. That curve just keeps going. And so we now are at the point where we have these systems that will perform this kind of task. We have systems that if plugged into themselves, that's the other thing, it's fairly straightforward tweaks that you start to make to these systems to add new capabilities. So have GPT-4 talk to itself walk itself through the process, for example, of starting a new company. There are experiments people on Twitter are doing with GPT-4 that have pretty amazing results that they're showing. So you give it a hundred bucks, see what it can do with it. Um, you know, even if GPT-4 can't make a unicorn yet, which it certainly can't, what level of scale allows us to do that? And, you know, who's the first person who's going to think to hook it up to whatever third-party service or API? So those are kind of the ingredients that we're, we're looking at. Let's talk about the amount of money that's flowing into the space. And it kind of brings me back to the point earlier about how there's like two tracks of like right. companies that are emerging, right? It's worrying because we're in a really tough economic environment and people are seeing this as the next big thing. And unlike, you know, something that you could argue like a cryptocurrency, this is something that has could have a significant a, a, a significantly more impact. So how are we supposed to think about the amount of money that is funneling into this space, I guess, and then also just balance that with, um, you know, this letter, and maybe we can get into that too, this letter that came out of, you know, some AI experts saying that, yeah. you know what, we actually need to press pause after GPT-4 and just kind of wait for things to to catch up. And I know that's a big question, but how would you, how are you thinking about it? Well, first of all, nothing's ever going to be as big as crypto. Okay, that's <laughs> just for. <laughs> um, but no, just you're, so we're clear. <laughs> just so we're clear. Uh, yeah, no, you're you're completely right. So the money is a huge dimension of this, right? So we talked about scaling, and I was just like, oh, there's this curve, and you go up the curve, and you get more intelligence. And so, why, Jeremy? The you know listeners may ask, like, why the hell don't we just skip higher up in the curve then? And the reason is money. So it costs a lot of money to buy the processors that are needed or access to the processors that are needed to make these cutting edge systems. 
So zoom back to uh, GPT-3, that model costs between five and $10 million to build, $5 million in just processing power. So you're just imagining like giant server farms in a data center humming away for $5 million worth of, of processing to train this system. Um, there's uncertainty about the price tag for things like GPT-4, but a good Intel seems to suggest we're talking in the hundreds of millions. So if you think about like the, the increase, the other thing to keep in mind too is processing power is getting cheaper and cheaper over time. Moore's law basically. So you can cram more, more, it doesn't really matter. Anyway, you, you can do more with, with less money over time. And so um, we're now at the point where you could build a GPT-3 level model on something like tens of thousands of dollars. These prices just plummet. What's cutting edge in 2020 becomes kind of interesting in 2021 and totally mainstream by 2022. And that's what we saw with image generation too. Image generation, like what, we, what we're now seeing with mid-journey, all that stuff that we're seeing on Twitter, that was actually possible in 2021, but it was just expensive. Things got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and now it's free. So like that's going to happen with this tech too. Um, but at the moment, the frontier is defined by projects that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars. That is the main impediment to scaling further. And it's a big part of the reason why OpenAI moved from being a nonprofit entity in the kind of pre-GPT-3 days to being a capped for-profit. They were basically forced to adopt a kind of for-profit model and a partnership with Microsoft, uh, and therefore sharing their technology and their systems with Microsoft, which may or may not, we don't know, may have different safety standards from OpenAI. That's its own separate question. It's like, how much power do you give away in order to keep this scaling train going? So all these companies are kind of facing this, this dilemma. If you want to do the, if you want to be the big safety aware AI lab, you have to answer the question at some point, where are you going to get your money? And you're either going to get it by getting donations. You know, if you're doing $200 million spends on cloud compute, that's probably not going to be enough. Or you're going to get it by launching your products and making money. And OpenAI has kind of been forced into that direction. So what safeguards are in place now, if any, to avoid <clears throat> these sorts of harmful outcomes? And I guess, looking forward, what do you think ought to be put into place? Yeah, so currently, uh, the, the answer is going to vary from lab to lab. Um, I'll, I'll give you maybe a very caricatured version of what I could imagine happening with the next big thing, let's say GPT-5. And, and none of what I'm about to say should reflect like, uh, you know, this is, this is not necessarily what I think is going to happen. It's, it, I don't have the knowledge to say this with confidence. It's just a rough sketch. Um, so we start by training, taking, I'll call it GPT-5, but this could be any lab, not necessarily OpenAI. They train their system on more text data than it's ever been trained on, on images, on video, and so on. And they get a system with a ton of raw capability. Now, the next step is they're going to do something called reinforcement learning from human feedback. And this is a technique where you get the system to produce outputs. And effectively, you kind of get human raters to evaluate those outputs and gradually fine tune the system to get it to behave in a safer and safer way. So here you would hope to catch the early signs of obvious power seeking, of obvious intent misalignment and things like that. Uh, a separate team would start to red team the system. I'm roughly describing what happened with GPT-4 here. So a separate team would go in and actually try to figure out, like try to convince the system that it's actually deployed in the real world, but have it in a, a closed box and see what it does. Does it seem to want to take 
power or collect resources or do whatever? Are we going to see more of this kind of CAPTCHA type activity that we talked about earlier? So that's all monitoring. Separate from that, you might hope that there'd be an interpretability team that's doing that kind of mechanistic interpretability that we talked about. So looking at the model and seeing if, you know, can we understand what the different neurons are doing? Is there a, you know, roughly speaking, a deception neuron? There wouldn't be, but is there something like that? Is there a cluster of neurons that are involved in that sort of thinking? And hopefully that would help with intent alignment so we can detect when the system is actually not trying to do the thing that we're asking it to. Um, so essentially, anytime you talk to people in the community, it's you get this kind of patchwork thing. The last thing that they'll say is that maybe we can hope that we can use AI to start to align AI. You know, humans have not come up with a solution to this problem. Getting an AI system that is super intelligent to not do something really dangerous is an unsolved problem, but maybe we can start to use our AI systems to help us with that. That's actually the plan of action at OpenAI, and it's part of what people are looking at in different ways at DeepMind and Anthropic as well. And so that would be a, a, a harder thing for me to kind of know about or describe because I think the way that works out in practice is probably pretty hacky and involves a lot of trial and error. I just think it's interesting because it sounds like we're trying to make the AI do something that like you kind of touched on earlier, we're not really even able to do ourselves as far as make clear goals and like not go totally rogue. Like it, it, it's just interesting how we seem surprised that like these things are a concern when it just kind of mimics our own human behavior, this kind of like scatteredness and the bad and the, and the good and, and all of that. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right, actually. So, the, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a quick answer to that question, and then I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of optimism that I think ties into what you're asking here. We so need the, it. Staying with the, the dark side here for a second. Um, so the, uh, the idea of, of um, power seeking is actually you know, very familiar to humans, right? Like, I, um, I can't tell you why I want $10 million more in my bank account. I can't tell you what I would use that for, but I can tell you whatever I want to get out of life, it's not going to be harder to get with $10 million in my bank account. Right. So I, I do, you know, I might do a university degree and uh, not know what I want to apply it to later. But I just know that, like, no matter what my goal is, a degree is going to hurt. Right. I'm going to try to prevent myself from being killed because whatever I want out of life, it's not going to be harder to get. It, sorry, it's going to be a lot harder to get if I'm dead. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these things we already do see in human people and in human systems. Um, to your point about like, yeah, like. Isn't it kind of obvious that we would end up here? Like we can't tell people how to build the just city or live the, the, the good life. So why should we expect to be able to get AIs to do it? There's a little bit of good news here. Okay, so if we go back to Anthropic, this Google-backed lab, very, very focused on safety and a, a really good safety team. Um, one of the techniques that they pioneered is called constitutional AI. And, and I think this is the single best bit of alignment related news that's come out in the last two years. So take your inscrutable AI system that's super smart, um, ask it a question, like ask it how to build a bomb, and it will tell you how to build a bomb. Um, but now take another maybe similar system, maybe even the same system, and get it to read a constitution that you feed it, a document that tells it how to behave in fuzzy, silly human terms right? Do no harm, be nice, be helpful, be benign, blah, blah, blah. These fuzzy terms, nobody knows what they mean. But put it in your constitution, have your AI read that constitution, and then critique the output of the first system that just told you how to build that bomb. So it goes, oh, shit, well, uh, I'm supposed to be benign, and you just said 
like here's how to build a bomb, that's not good. Here's what you should have written. And so you take that correction and you retrain the original model on that correction. I know that's a lot of steps. No, so it's, I guess, but it's about like, it's like, so the, it's like in a, in a way it's like the rules that kind of hold our society together and force us to behave that could potentially be replicated. Kind of. Yeah. Like, you know, on the internet, if, if you read the, the word like benign on the internet, right. You kind of know roughly what it means. You know, like, you, you know, that killing a ton of people to make paper clips is like, that's probably not benign, whatever benign means. We might get into arguments over like, you know, it, like, what about abortion? What about like all the things that divide us? But like the big things like don't kill everybody on planet Earth. Yeah, it feels like we can get consensus on uh, language models. So these large AI systems that are trained by from all the text on the Internet, they learn that same fuzziness. And so the word benign has the same general fuzzy, vague meaning that you would attribute to it if you had just like read all the text on the internet and based on that, learn to assign meaning to different words. And so you can give the system a constitution with those fuzzy words, get it to read that constitution and then critique the output of another system and say, hey, you should have written this and then get the other system to kind of like get retrained on the corrected outputs, if you will. And the, the, the key thing here is it's a fully automated pipeline. It's AI correcting AI, which is a, for technical reasons, a really important element. Humans just reason way too slowly to like correct an AI when it's about to make a horrible mistake. And so things like this do make me materially more optimistic that we're starting to find strategies that scale well, uh, whether they're going to be applied, whether they're going to be refined in time. Those are all open questions right now. So I think you alluded to this study earlier that was a survey of people working in machine learning and AI. And I think half of them, something like that, said there was a 10% risk of a catastrophic outcome. I may be getting those numbers slightly off, but I think that was sort of the gist of it. Uh, where do you fall in that spectrum? Do you, would you agree with that? Do you think that that's overplaying it, underplaying it? Um, so, so yeah, just for, for context on that, uh, it depends how you define the people who are polled. If you poll AI safety people who specifically study things like power seeking and whatnot, um, uh, you'll get considerably higher numbers, let's say, than, than uh, oh, good. necessarily. To, yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's sort of like as you move away, you kind of get more and more people. Uh, it's funny. I, I was on Twitter, which I shouldn't be. I was on Twitter this morning <laughs> and, and I saw like a, a famous physicist. Um, who was like confidently tweeting like, guys, AI is not going to like do this or that. It's not going to end the world, whatever, but it could pose these interesting. And, you know, there's the kind of comment that like has that, that ring of like uh, kind of uh, what responsibility and like, you know, um, but, but fundamentally, if you extend the circle out, eventually you're just going to get to people's like innate gut feeling and that's not very meaningful. And so, um, yeah, the more the further you get from the AI safety community, the lower you see those odds, and the less you see people actually being aware of things like inner alignment, outer alignment, power seeking, all the things we've discussed. Um, but you're right. So if you, if you pull AI researchers generally, you'll usually get some median estimate of around like ten percent or twenty percent or thirty percent, somewhere in that range, depending on the party you go to. Um, I uh, I don't oddly like I don't know that it's super useful for me to, to throw out a, a probability other than to say, I, I think any number between 10 and 90% is totally legit. I think any number below 10% and any number above 90% is like, the onus is going to be on you to like explain 
why you're so confident in that outcome. Um, but I think any number between 10 and 90 gets you to some pretty swift policy responses that are called for. So in terms of what we actually do next, I, I think it kind of converges. I, I think it's, you know, to me, 10%. If someone said, oh, you know, this thing that you're working on has a 10% chance of causing, you know, the extinction of the species, I would probably stop working on it. You know, that seems well, really high to me. So I guess... Do you know why people are still working on it? Yeah, so, so, so I have a, a historical answer and then a present answer. So you're clearly not a physicist back in the 1930s and 40s because at the time, quite famously, physicists worried that the chain reaction that would be unleashed by a nuclear weapon would vaporize Earth's atmosphere. What probability would it do that with, you ask? 10% was the answer given by the physics community. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's go, boys. And then we launched the, you know, like this is these this is human beings, right? Like so and similar similar wow. things I think affected that decision. One, basic douchey wonderful human curiosity. Thank God it's there and holy shit, that is scary. Uh, if you give humans a big red button, you're like something terrible might happen if you hit that button. Something terrible might really might really fucking happen. A lot of people just go I'm going to hit the button. So like, that's one aspect of this. And I think it's actually like kind of under underrated as a source of, of this uh, phenomenon. A separate thing is though, okay, let's say that you're given agency over one of these AI projects, right? You're like, you have the option to shut down tomorrow. Obviously, if you shut down tomorrow, everybody races forward. Um, if you can convince your peers, if you can convince your peers in North America, even, or Europe, uh, you're going to have a team out of Tsinghua University or Baidu that's going to do it uh, you know, two years from now. And I can tell you, they do not understand. I will use that word understand. It's not that they don't care about. They do not understand technical AI safety. I've had conversations with leading researchers in these groups. And we, you know, when you talk to capabilities folks in the States and California, they may not be AI alignment researchers themselves, AI safety people themselves, but they all know someone. They're all like at least aware of this space of the catastrophic risk angle. The same is simply not true in China. And that's something that like has to change. But if you're thinking of this as a leader of one of these efforts, you're kind of thinking, oh shit, like uh, we've got these fast following Chinese projects. How long before one of those just overtakes, even if we can settle on a pause? And that's part of the reason why I think we've got to think about, anyway, uh, the six month thing and, and any other uh, initiatives like that. As an AI safety expert, what would be like if you could snap your fingers and there was to be like a development overnight, whether it was like a government policy or like a technological breakthrough, like what would be one thing that would be very encouraging in your eyes to see? Mm, boy, I'd love to be an AI safety expert. Maybe that's my first thing. Um, but after that, uh, so <laughs> I think maybe I'll give one on one on each here. So on the technical side, uh, boy, would it be great to have a solution to the inner alignment problem. Something more than just like, oh, we're going to peer into these things like Taylor was asking about, like, you know, can we, can we look at these things? Like, yeah, a solution like that where I could just like look at Taylor and be like, yes, man, that is done. We are all good. Um, so whether it's, it's interpretability solutions or something just even better would be solving that problem. Just like having a strategy, a series of keystrokes that we can type into our computer that fix intent alignment. Um, that would be technical. On the policy side, um, if, if I was the world dictator, I would stop all AI research and I would also stop <clears throat> all um, 
hardware production of semiconductors, as devastating as that would be economically. Um, if if we are looking at um, if we are looking at the level of harm that this technology could represent, I think there's at least an argument for that. Let me put it this way: I would have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people to figure out whether that's uh, the thing to do. But I think it's something that should be on the table. Um, you need to find a way to track the usage of processing power in all these major labs and shut it down at the flip of a switch if things seem to be going sideways. That would be a magic tech that would be really useful. Mm. So kind of a limit on how much processing power any you know AI model can use or be built on? 100%. That's super interesting, interesting. because it seems like the involvement of obviously like the private sector in these industries is like the big hiccup like if only if only you were the world dictator jeremy i know i keep saying that right and doesn't <laughs> doesn't that mean that i would make a great one too like aren't the best dictators that's the ones who are like hang the people on guys who want it the most <laughs> yeah. will be that's the right. best that's at right. the job that's the that's right the benevolent dictator <laughs> that's um, right but no you know the 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 challenges as we explored when we tried to kind of step into the shoes of sam altman the challenge is that the the leaders of these labs have less agency than we think from the outside, it looks like they're all racing to the precipice, but like they're all like trying to, they all think that they're going to do it the safest. So you go to Demis Asabas of DeepMind, he's like, yo, I better get there first because my alignment team, they know what's up. Um, OpenAI, same thing. Anthropic, same thing. You know, like th this is, um, I, don't, I don't know about China. I can't speak for that ecosystem, but certainly even just with the actors that we have in the West who care about this stuff, they're sort of locked into this thing. And so uh, anyway, uh, a little empathy, I guess, is called for, uh, but... <laughs> I just want to finish on what people who are listening to this can look for to see if things are going better or getting worse. Like, what would you say, here's a signal that we're making good progress on some of these problems. Here's a signal that you should start to, you know, freak out. Ooh, good question. Um First of all, there, there are certain people who you could track on Twitter, especially. That's where a lot of the most interesting discussions happen. Um, if you see pessimists start to turn more optimistic, that's a good indication that like some kind of alignment thing has gone well. Um, the greatest pessimist you will ever encounter is a guy called Eliezer Yudkowsky. He is the long-winded and very darkly spirited founder of an organization called MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Um, I don't think that his tone is super helpful. He's got a real doomer vibe to him. But like, as a canary in a coal mine, like if, if there was good news, I think he'd be the first to share it. Um, and he has shared little bits of good news in the past. I think that um, on the, you know, is something really, actually, is something really scary going to happen? He'd probably be a good one too, just because he's so sensitive to the stuff. He's so attuned to it. Um, I think um, anything that, that, you see that looks like or is called AI alignment progress and that gets shared by the top labs, um, you know, DeepMind, OpenAI, Anthropic, as a major milestone in AI alignment has a decent chance of being a good thing. I start to worry a little bit because some of these labs are going to start to signal to the world that they're making progress perhaps when they aren't just to avoid regulatory intervention. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but by and large, like they're good actors. They, they want a safe outcome. If they're doing this, it's because they think that, that they're the ones who are going to make it work safely. Um, so again, like I think empathy is called for, like there's, it's hard to just point fingers and criticize, but, uh, yeah. So I, I think those categories of things, like 
look for the leaders in the space and how they're responding to certain developments. And that'll probably give you a good sense of what's to come. Okay, well, that was great, Jeremy. Thanks for for doing that. Uh, we'll have to have you back on in, in like six or six months or twelve months if we're all still here and haven't been turned into Maybe paper six clips weeks. to uh, <laughs> yes. give us an update on where we're at. Just for my own anxiety, really, more than anything. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. I, look, these are amazing questions, and uh, anyway, very excited to uh, to to talk again anytime. So, Jeremy, if people want to read more about this or dig into the issue more, where can they find you? Uh, where would you point them? Uh, I guess there are two things that come to mind. First, I've been uh, co-hosting the Last Week in AI podcast with uh, Andre Karenkov, who's a Stanford PhD in AI. And so that's kind of our roundup on AI news. I bring more of an AI safety lens to it. He brings more of the capability side, so kind of a, a bit of a balance. And um, and the other thing, is I, I do have a book coming out. Uh, it's called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. It might sound odd to talk about quantum physics in the context of these sorts of systems and, and what we've just been discussing, um, but there actually is kind of an interesting tie-in. You know, there's this question of at what level of scale uh, do our AI s- systems start to exhibit traits like awareness, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, sentience. Um, this has actually been openly discussed, believe it or not, in the AI world for the last few months, especially as we started to see more and more signs of like AI systems doing things that seem, let's say, just more human-like to give the short version. And so uh, this is a book about uh, that in part, like the physics of consciousness and how it ties into AI. Talk about that towards the end of it. So anyway, if you're interested in like physics, uh, kind of the implications that it has for our conception of reality and then how that ties into AI and all that good stuff, um, yeah, find bookstores everywhere. And Perfect. So we'll put links to those in the show notes. Jeremy, thank you again for coming on. Thanks so much. Well, sorry, you know, we usually say that was a fascinating conversation. Um, I don't know if it that's was. the adjective. It was, but I don't know if that's the adjective I would use to describe what we just heard. Yeah, well, I have a, I'm going to ask you how you feel, but I'm going to tell you how I feel. And it's probably how our listeners feel, right? It's just yeah. like, how can you not be worried? Um, all you can hope for is that there are some smart people that have a grip on things and are working to make these systems as safe as possible. But um, it wasn't particularly encouraging that Jeremy's like best case scenario kind of just involved um, effectively what is like an off switch for all research and the development of semiconductors. That's obviously not how this world works or something that can happen. So um, I'm, I'm still letting it sink in but what are what are your initial reactions to the conversation we just had no for sure uh i think there's a lot to process there i mean it seems to me like even a 10 percent risk of something like that is way way too high but the other thing is that we didn't even get into all of the non like extinction level risks that come with ai like the economic impacts and how does it impact people's jobs? Um, you know, the risks of financial crises. I can just imagine unleashing these things through like high frequency trading and stuff like that, where we already sometimes don't really know what's going on. And now we're basically supercharging those systems that introduce potentially a lot of instability into other aspects of our life that maybe don't involve, you know, 
the extinction of the species, but could still be quite destabilizing. Definitely. Like that's a good, I mean, a good a starting point as any is the extinction of the species or more broadly talking about the misuse of AI. But I think with why it's so complicated to have this conversation is because you can unpack this, like you said, in so many different pieces, right? Like you mentioned what some of the effects could be on the financial system, like what people are focused on day to day right now is like, how is this going to impact my job, particularly job losses and the effect on the economy there? Um, We talk about like the data that's being used to train these systems and how they might be filled with bias, how they could be discriminatory, how they're being kind of rolled out without, you know, with there being kind of flaws in these systems as well. And so there's so many ways that you can unpack this conversation. It's, it is, it is, we'll, we'll have to have Jeremy back on to, you know, to, to talk about this, but I would love to know if there was anything that you learned in this conversation that you didn't previously maybe know about how these systems work or maybe what was a particularly interesting takeaway yeah well i mean all the technical details i'm i'm really not familiar with that and also sort of the issues around um interpretability and alignment and the different things that we're talking about when we talk about alignment those were all new fairly new territory for me um and kind of interesting some of the things that jeremy talked about about one of the strategies for safety being maybe we have a, you know, strictly benevolent or like very carefully controlled AI that monitors the other AI. Uh, I don't know. That raises more questions for me, but at least it's, it's one thing. How about you? I just, I like the tie in with how the behaviors that we're worried about with AI are behaviors that, you know, that humans have always kind of uh, leaned into, right? When we talk about the power-seeking behavior, like um, it's funny how the worst parts of AI are kind of just like the worst parts of human behavior. And the real danger that this technology poses is just like the scale at which that same type of kind of behavior can be then, you know, deployed and just the efficiency and the speed. I don't like the sound of the cheap, cheap, cheap processing power and the capabilities that it can give here. And it's difficult to, um, yeah, I, I think that was the most interesting piece for me. Um, but what I, what I wish we had is, is maybe like a clearer path forward. I guess we'll see what comes of this letter that is calling for a bit of a pause uh, in research uh, now with the recent release of GPT-4. But it's also interesting how Jeremy mentions like, we don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing or like what side to even take in this because apparently like the days matter for these big labs that are actually, you know, doing, you know, due diligence or have safety at top of mind too, that they can't even afford, right, to be a few months behind as the processing power or like the cheapness as processing power, I guess, like gets cheaper down the road. I mean, the, the Jeremy's point about how this isn't just happening in North America either, right? So even if all the North American labs decided to stick to some sort of a set of regulations or limitations, there's still labs in China that are not subject to those limitations. So, I mean, any sort of cooperation or agreement to put limits on this stuff will necessarily have to be international in nature. And I know that's something that we have done before with other problems like, you know, acid rain or the ozone layer, those things come to mind. But the examples of it working are 
it's not frequent that it does work out when we need to corral a bunch of countries into putting limits on their technology. Yeah, I I don't think there's a high chance of, of that happening. But in any case, we'll have to revisit this conversation down the line. But I think for now, that's a good place to leave it. What do you think? For sure. I think, uh, if anything, this conversation has just increased the the weight of importance that I assign to this part of technology and the economy. So I think a good space to have more more episodes down the road. But yeah, why don't we leave it there for now? That's where we'll leave it. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Free Lunch. Uh, I am your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And you can find more episodes uh, just like this about other topics that matter most to Canadians across uh, topics in economics and business uh, on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you back here next week. Bye.